The great vigil is about hearing God's story, not merely as watchful, wakeful, mostly wakeful bystanders, not even as sincere admirers, but as actual participants, as people who in a profound and utterly real way, not virtual, real way, dwell in and live out God's story and the stories of our own lives. Each and every one of us is made fearfully and wonderfully made by God, for God, for life-giving, life-transforming fellowship with God. And that means God's story is the only context in which the stories of our lives make any real sense at all. And that's something I want us to be thinking about. Our lives are not self-explanatory. Our lives are not self-explanatory. In fact, our lives are enigmas and riddles, or worse yet, until we are graciously engrafted into God's story, until we find new and eternal life in Jesus Christ, that true Son of God, that true Son of Mary. To say it another way, yeah, the triune God of the gospel is the rightful author, the only redeemer, the true teller of our stories. So let's continue entering into God's story as we've been doing this night and ours together. So imagine with me. Imagine that you have this very same heart struggle as the ancient Israelites in the prophet Isaiah's day. Imagine that right here, right now, your heart is prone to wander and you can palpably feel it. Imagine that you're no stranger to the inner urge to chase after the idols of our age, not Baal, not Gad, of our age, to trust in false gods, false visions and versions of the kingdom, empty gospels. This isn't too terribly difficult to imagine, is it? <laughs> the best illustration for this, for each of us, is simply the landscape of our own lives. The struggle's real, common to all of us. And so as we think about this and enter in, first and foremost, hear this. The God who made us for himself grieves over this, breaks God's heart. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to this lament, the lament of the Lord over the ancient Israelites. He says, be appalled. Oh heavens at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Thirsty people, right? Thirsty people, restless hearts, living waters, broken cisterns. All of this echoes another scene in God's story. We've heard a little bit about it earlier tonight, but it's essential to understanding our own. It takes place in a garden. It's about hungry people, God-given bounty, ill-gotten food. We have firsthand acquaintance with this scene because it's lived out in our experience. We know it. We know it firsthand. It's life east of Eden for us. We're sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, and we know what it means to run and hide from our God and Maker. We've seen our nakedness. 
We've smelled our fear. We've tasted our shame. We've felt in our hands the fig leaves of blame shifting, self-sufficiency, self-justification. So hear God's call. It's God's call to our primal parents. It's ever fresh, ever reissued to us because their story is ours. Their story tells us our own. And hear this, it's God's first response to the breaking of the world. It's a heavy load to bear, eh? the breaking of the world. It's God's very first response. Where are you? Where are you? Three words, really simple, and yet so beautiful, they break our hearts. Beauty, beauty has a, a way of breaking our hearts, doesn't it? Where are you? No, God's first response to a broken world isn't, what have you done? It's not even, why did you do it? It's, where are you? Where are you? This is supremely good news for people like us, people who thirst, people who hunger, people of broken cisterns, forbidden fruit. From it, we learn that God has always and ever been a God who seeks. That's what we hear in Isaiah. God has always and ever been a God who seeks, always and ever been a God who calls, the God who invites. As you've just heard in our scripture reading, Isaiah 55, this plays out with great beauty, great power there in that prophetic literature. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are a message of divine judgment upon Israel. Flight, idolatry. For God's holy love burned white hot, fanned a flame by the sin of his people. Then something happens. Someone emerges and moves that message in that next section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 53, to that of comfort, hope for weary exiles. Isaiah hails as someone in four poems, servant poems, are often called songs of the suffering servant. And they tell us that this servant is divinely anointed, divinely appointed for a specific task. He will restore the offspring, not only of Abraham, but also of Adam. bringing light and life through Israel to the generations and to the very ends of the earth. And mystery of all mysteries, he will triumph, but he will do it through efficacious suffering. He will set all things to rights by the strength of his almighty wounds, his almighty woundedness. He'll deal a death blow to darkness and death precisely by descending into the darkness of death itself and out from soon, a couple hours, out from. Most of us know best that fourth and final so, uh, so, servant song, Isaiah 53. This servant will be despised, rejected of men, bearing our sorrows, bearing our griefs. He'll be pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement will bring us peace. His blessed wounds will heal us. Listen to what's going on here. and Don't miss this. God is singing. Servant songs. God is singing. 
He's singing to a broken people in a broken world. What's God's message? Lift up your head. Be not afraid. Hold fast. Take heart, even amidst present turmoil. Precisely there. For these things which were cast down are being raised up, and the things which have grown old are being made new, and all things are being brought to their perfection by this suffering servant. Isaiah 55, our text, is the culmination, the crescendo, the crescendo of these servant songs. It's a grand and glorious invitation offered by a grand and glorious God. The call of salvation offered freely and offered to all. God's a God, our God is a God of boundless plenitude, effulgent fullness. Why does anything exist rather than all things exist rather than nothing because the triune God of the gospel and his pregnant, fecund glory explodes out in the creation of all things. God doesn't create. God doesn't call out of destitution or emptiness. He calls out of fullness. And that prompts him ever to offer, ever to seek. He declares time and time again. We've seen it four times in this text. Come. Come, come you who are parched and famished, that you might have sustenance that nourishes you, gratifies you, true food and drink for true hunger and thirst. Come, you, you who are haunted by guilt, battered and bruised by anxiety, dizzied by the din of this noisy world, that you might listen and live. Come, you who are shriveled in imagination, starved for beauty, that you might behold my glory, that you might behold me, says God. Behold, behold, come. Come you who, are, who were lost, now found, so that you might learn to seek me rather than flee me. Those of us who live this side of that first Christmas day have the distinct privilege of knowing Isaiah's suffering servant as Emmanuel, God with us, not only God with us, God crucified for us. In the face of Jesus Christ, we behold nothing less, nothing other than the very face of God. What is God like? Our Lord's words and acts are the words and acts of God. There is no other word from God than the eternal word made flesh. He alone has the words of eternal life. And there is no God behind the back of this one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Paul says. There's no less generous God. There's no less welcoming God. Uh, there's no more um, fastidious God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Not at all. Just as there's nothing unlike Christ in the Father, there's nothing unlike the Father in Jesus Christ. He has come, in fact, to put the bosom of the Father on full display for you, for me, for us. 
So receive with joyful confidence the great invitation of Isaiah offered afresh this very night by Jesus Christ himself and to you personally, from the Father's heart to yours. Listen to what he says. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. No one comes to the Father except the Son. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus Christ, who forever dwells, the eternal word of God, ever dwelling in the very bosom, very bosom of his Father, who comes to open this up, shows us what the Father's like. Father's like that. The Father's like that. The Father's like that. Our font, right? To the Father is. So let me make a couple of pastoral punctuations here. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then God's story, in a profoundly real way, is yours. You have been engrafted into the very life of God. When the Spirit comes, indwelling us, as Jesus says in the upper room, when that happens, you will know, experientially, firsthand, you will know that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. If this doesn't describe you, hear the word of the Lord. Come. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come. His desire is to offer us his very self, not something, not a commodity detached from him, his very self, that we might dwell in God and God in us forever and ever, a world without end. I think with this Matthew 11 text, we've heard the sweetest, sweetest offer of the gospel in all of scripture, so sweet. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come. But it's not a passing suggestion either, right? It's pure promise. But it's lordly command as well, right? It's in the imperative. Come. Come. Why would you seek for food that can't satisfy? Why would you go to broken cisterns? Drop your idols. Drop your self-justifications. Come, live, taste, eat. If you're asking where, how, the good news is you're already here, right where you belong. We're in the sanctuary of the church, the very womb of Christ's bride. This is where new life happens. This is where life transformation happens. This is where our Lord says, I will be with you. I will be with you. So continue to do what you're doing. Seek, behold him this very night in his presence. Continue, tune your ears to apostolic witness. 
where Christ says, if you hear my apostles, you hear me, right? The mystery of the proclamation of the word. Jesus Christ speaks. Jesus Christ makes himself present to us. Live into your baptism at the living waters of the font. That cistern will not break. That is a full cistern, living water. Taste and see soon, a couple hours yet. Taste and see that the Lord is good and the sacrament of his body and blood, true food, true drink. And by the way, true food and true drink that gives us a taste of what true food is and calls forth, right? Calls forth. Um, doesn't, doesn't, we're not glutted there, but our tastes are actually formed there. Come and taste good food and good drink there and commune with Jesus Christ in the fellowship of his people and the worship of his people that he inhabits. Our Lord is here and saying, come. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.